This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the California, of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity here. Coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, a new human rights uh, watch report on uh, sex offender laws and their um, limits, uh, what they're not actually achieving. Uh, with us is uh, the author of that new report, uh, Sarah Tofty. Uh, welcome. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, th- that's a pretty amazing report. Um, it comes uh, at a time where there is a moral panic about sex offenders, and that's why um, registration for uh, sex offender registries, uh, uh, residency restrictions, you can't live near a school, um, and also uh, basically lifelong registration, and also the f- implications for for uh, jobs. Uh, they can't find jobs. People who are uh, former sex offenders uh, or convicted and served their time uh, cannot uh, make a living because they have to be. They have nowhere to live uh, near where there are jobs. Um, how did you come to that realization? Did you? believe many of the myths uh, yourself about sex offenders uh, originally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I did, actually. Um, before I started working on this report, um, I don't think I, I thought necess- too much about the, the sort of the assumptions that underlie sex offender laws, the assumptions that most um, former sex offenders will reoffend. Um, the assumption, in some ways, that that stranger danger is is the the greatest danger. This this idea that it's strangers who pose the most harm to kids um, and not people they know and love. And again, I think I just I believe like I think a lot of people believe that previously convicted sex offenders pose the the greatest threat to um, children um, in terms of sexual violence and. So I was surprised as I started doing the research to find that, you know, roughly 87% of new sex crimes every year are committed by individuals who have no previous sex crimes conviction. So if we're interested in preventing sexual violence, um, we've really got to start focusing on this fuller picture, the fact that um, the vast majority of sex crimes every year are, are committed by individuals who have no previously convictions, and so our focus only on previously convicted sex offenders doesn't serve us very well. Um, And also, you know, looking at the laws that we do have in place, um, uh, whether or not they're justified, um, whether or not they're working to protect public safety, and whether or not everyone who is subject to these laws actually poses a risk to the community. And what we found, um, sort of disturbingly, was that these laws, there's really no evidence that any of these laws are working. Uh, We're investing a lot of time and money and energy into um, these laws. And again, we're focusing a lot of the public debate about sexual violence in this country on um, the threat previously convicted sex offenders pose to children and others, you know, and, and so in some ways it was disappointing and, and disturbing to see that these laws aren't really, there's no real evidence that they prevent sexual violence. There's a lot of evidence they do an incredible amount of harm to um, previously convicted sex offenders, and it makes it nearly impossible for them to reintegrate. Um, and I think that there might be some people who really could care less if, 
if, um, you know, a former child molester um, safely reintegrates into the community. But really, you know, the fact is that when people safely reenter the community, um, former offenders, that's good for all of us because it means no more reoffending and it means um, fewer victims. And that really makes us all safer. I think that uh, raises uh, another issue about this whole uh, whole prison industrial complex in a sense that after that generally people are sent to prison and the key is thrown away. They're not rehabilitated. And so in your report you do talk about uh, a center. Um, is Maybe you can talk about that. There's a center for sex offender management uh, that tries to um, help uh, offenders integrate back into the community, but these sex offender laws are making it much more difficult. Well, you know, that's a, you know, it's true that I think there's been a growing acknowledgement in this country um, about the way when we talk about prison and we talk about holding offenders accountable. Um, you know, it's important to hold, uh, uh, you know, someone who commits a crime accountable for that crime. And, you know, here in general, just talking about any kind of, uh, any individual convicted of a crime, whether that's drug possession or murder, um, there has been some acknowledgement in, in the public that prison um, is, it, you know, when someone is released from prison, they have a really difficult time reentering the community. And there has been some movement um, sort of across party lines um, among unusual allies to try to help um, former offenders reintegrate. Now, there's often exceptions are carved out for former sex offenders. You know, for example, states will pass laws that say that um, after 10 years, um, individuals who commit crimes can have their records um, uh, erased or expunged, but not sex offenders. Or um, individuals who commit crimes are eligible sometimes for public housing, but not sex offenders. And so for some reason, we've carved out this space for sex offenders, and, and we think of them differently than we do all other former offenders. Now, part of this, I think, is very understandable because you know, sexually violent crimes are just heinous, terrible crimes. And I think a lot of us, we, you know, they invoke strong, we have a strong feelings of revulsion about, um, you know, when we think about a child being sexually abused, and that should make us angry and outraged. And so um, it's understandable on some level that we have um, developed, I think, some of these these fears about about former sex offenders being released into the community. But again, like I said, you know, as hard as it may be to believe, the data sort of shows us that um, a majority of sex offenders will not go on to reoffend. Um, that these laws may be making it more likely that they'll reoffend by making it very difficult for them to sort of move on with their lives. Um, and also, again, you know, these laws are showing us too that you know stuff that we don't talk about a whole lot. I mean, the fact that when the media covers. Um, sexually violent crimes, it's often, it pays a lot of attention to crimes where um, a stranger abducts, um, rapes, and murders a child, um, and that stranger is also a previously convicted sex offender. And those are horrible crimes, and, but they don't happen, they're, they're pretty rare, they're sort of the exception to the rule. Um, most children are sexually abused by someone they know and trust and love. Over 90% of kids um, are sexually abused by their father or their great uncle, 
um, or their brother or their sister. And, and that's not a picture of sexual violence. We're really talking about that much. And maybe because it's very difficult to talk about, it's difficult to think about sexual violence happening within families and within the home. And again, these laws don't, don't really get at that and get at preventing that kind of violence. Um, in some ways, especially with online notification where anyone anywhere with an internet access can look up someone's name if they've been convicted of a sex crime, can find their name, often their address, their place of employment, other identifying information, the, the statutory name of the crime they were convicted of, they can find that online. And, um, you know, and, and I guess the idea is that if parents just know all the people out there who are previously convicted um, offenders, they can protect their children. And again, that doesn't really get at this fuller picture of sexual violence that, again, most sex crimes are committed by people who don't have previous sex crimes convictions. And often if you're, you know, your child is probably most at risk um, from being sexually abused by, again, someone they know and trust and love. I think that's been a statistic. Uh, actually, that's been uh, there for a long time that stranger abduction is really a minimal part of this whole thing or stranger abduction or, or abuse uh, and yet uh, you know for decades that has been true but the media has been reporting different differently yeah that you know I think the media doesn't you know they sort of do it in an implicit way I mean the media doesn't explicitly say you know stranger abductions are common, um, but I think the way in which they cover to almost a disproportionate effect um, stranger abductions, they, they cover it so extensively. I think most people know details about the crimes, you know, the, the murders of, of um, Megan Kanka or Jessica Lunsford or Polly Class, and again, those were horrific crimes. And um, you know, it's understandable that the media is going to pay attention to that. Those are heinous crimes, and we have to figure out ways to stop them from happening again. At the same time, when the media covers that almost exclusively, if the media chooses to cover sexual violence, again, they almost exclusively focus on these crimes. I think it implicitly sends this message or might give us sort of a misconception that this is very common and, again, that children are most at danger from, from strangers and from previously convicted sex offenders. And so, again, I think the media has played a big part in, in, in um, um, sort of keeping these misconceptions or these myths about um, sexual violence sort of alive. Um, at yeah. The, yeah, at the base of this, uh, you're saying that sex offenders who have served their time have human rights. You know that is a big that is a big part of it. Um, that's the study originated as as we wanted to look at. We were getting a lot of um, emails and letters from people who had been previously convicted of a sex crime, um, who were saying that because of the online notification and and in particular the residency restrictions, they were having a very difficult time stabilizing their lives. They it was hard to find employment. Um, either people would find out about their sex sex crimes conviction and not hire them, or they would be hired and they would later be dismissed or fired because colleagues would find out about their sex, would Google their names, say, and find out that they were on the sex offender registry and sort of push them out of um, their place of employment. This would also happen um, in schools that they would attend. This would happen um, in neighborhoods they would try to move into. And in particular with residency restrictions, when you push people, you literally banish 
a certain class of offenders from living um, in entire cities and towns effectively, you know, you also are just creating, again, um, making it, you're making it nearly impossible for that person to reintegrate into the community. They can't find stable housing. Um, they can't find any kind of stable employment. Um, they really literally just can't find a place to live. This is something that, um, as I'm sure um, you and your listeners have been following, I mean, this is something that's been happening in California and will continue to happen with um, the implementation of Proposition 83 or Jessica's Law, where you have offenders, um, you know, uh, any, uh, anyone convicted of a sex crime, you know, when the, the, who are released from prison after Proposition 83 went into effect can't live within, I think, 2,000 feet of, of public parks and schools. And this literally will, will push offenders, um, you know, out of entire communities. And again, it's, it's, it is about the basic rights of offenders. I mean, no matter what we do as human beings, um, we can do some pretty terrible things as human beings, and we remain human beings. And so we retain a certain basic level of human rights. And so it is about, you know, the right to housing um, and the right to employment um, and the right to the security of your own person. Um, and again, but it's also about public safety because what states um, and municipalities that have enacted things like residence jurisdiction laws have found that there really is very little connection between someone's residential proximity and their likelihood to reoffend. And so residence jurisdictions, there's really no basis for them in, there's no evidence uh, that they prevent sexual violence. But what you do is you push people away, you push them underground, and for people that do pose a risk to the community and for people that we want um, law enforcement to be monitoring, um, you know, law enforcement lose track of those individuals. And again, that doesn't really make any of us safer. There's really no public safety value to residency restrictions. Uh, in terms of registration, uh, you pointed out in the report that um, these, um, the types of people that are listed, sometimes it depends on the crime, right? Uh, is but, but the whole idea the whole idea is that people don't realize that um, a sex crime could range from uh, fondling to uh, rape. And so people lump, uh, tend to lump the names of these people together and think that they are accused of the most horrendous crimes and call them monsters. Uh, yeah. You've interviewed some people uh, who were engaged in consensual um, um, sex with, uh, when they were teenagers and uh, yet they have to register for life. Yes. Um, you know, that's part of the problem. You know, registration used to be um, a law in, was enacted in 1994. It was the first federal registration law. It was called the Jacob Wetterling Act. Um, it was named after a boy who was abducted at gunpoint near his home by um, a stranger in a mask, and he's still missing today. And this happened in 1989, and his parents were... His parents asked the police what they needed um, for their investigation to move forward, and the police said, you know, it would be great to have a ready list of suspects for us about, you know, people who have been convicted of sexually violent crimes against kids because we could start there and then mm -hmm. investigate them. And um, so that's what sort of the Jacob Wetterling Act did. It was an act where people who were convicted of sexually violent crimes against children um, had to register for 10 years with law enforcement. 
Um, and, and that's where we started out in this country. And now we're in a place where um, we seem to have forgotten a little bit or, or gone quite a ways away from the original purpose of, of, and value of these laws. Um, we've sort of diluted the registry's value at this point by it's sort of overlong and overbroad. And by that I mean, like you mentioned, there are people on there who are convicted of nonviolent offenses like public urination or consensual teenage sex who probably never posed a risk to the community and should never have been on these registries in the first place. Um, there are people who committed sex crimes as children and who are placed on registries. And they may have been sexually violent crimes, but there is a sense um, among experts in the treatment community that kids can be different than adults and they respond differently to treatment and they have a even better chance of being rehabilitated. And so there are a lot of children on there, on the registries, or people who committed crimes as children, and it's not clear they should be on there. Um, and you also have, when I say overlong, I mean that increasingly states have, are putting anyone convicted of a sex crime on a registry um, without assessing at all whether or not they pose any risk to the community. And then increasingly states are having them stay on there for life with no opportunity to get off the registry. So someone could have committed their sex crime 30 years ago or 20 years ago. And again, it may have been a sexually violent offense, but they might have been living in the community now um, offense-free for, for decades, um, but they really have no opportunity to show um, rehabilitation or lawful behavior in, 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 in an attempt to get off the registry. And pretty disturbingly, you know, in the last, in July of 2006, Congress passed and President Bush signed a law called the Adam Walsh Act, and it really greatly expands um, uh, the, the federal definition of what should be a sex crime. It's just basically any crime involving um, in some ways involving sex, um, and it greatly expands the duration that, that people have to be placed on state registries. And for the first time ever, federal law now mandates that states place um, juveniles as young as 14 um, on their registries and subject them to community notification. And so, you know, so how to work before, and just quickly, because I'm not sure I got to explain this or explain this well, is that what would happen is, is there are federal laws that govern um, uh, registries and community notification. Um, but it was, and they always set the minimum, the things that states had to do or have to do in order to receive um, all of their federal funding for law enforcement activities. And um, usually states went beyond the minimum of what, what federal law said they had to do. Um, now with the Adam Walsh Act, you actually have the Adam Walsh Act going beyond what many states do. And, and so states are going to be forced to choose whether or not they want to. The few states that have sort of carefully tailored registration laws who have refused to put kids on their registries who don't put low-risk offenders on their registries, they're going to have to choose now between implementing the Adam Walsh Act um, or losing federal funding. And, they, and some states are finding themselves in a pretty tough position because, again, the few states that have actually used experts to try to come up with sex offender laws that are sort of targeted at only those who pose a high risk only for as long as they pose a high risk to the community. Um, their laws are sort of threatened um, by the Adam Walsh Act. Is it uh, easy to get off the list? Uh, I know in California, this uh, uh, the ACLU did um, get um, a lot of gay people off the list because mm -hmm. they were arrested back in the 50s or 40s in kind of a Larry Craig incident yeah. uh, where they were cruising in uh, restrooms and, 
and by police that were set up, setting them up. And uh, they could be 90 years old now. And they were all of a sudden got this letter saying they had to register <laughs> on a sex offender yeah. list. Uh, you know, so the ACLU did uh, get some kind of, um, I guess, uh, legislative uh, reform there to exempt people that were uh, charged or convicted in these kind of tea room uh, toilet uh, arrests back from those days. I don't know what the exact language was. Um, so there was one attempt, at least, to get to uh, a, 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 as a group to get uh, these people off the list. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there was definitely, I mean, that was a problem in some states and, and in California, and we followed that where, yes, there were some individuals who were convicted of crimes that um, we no longer consider to be crimes, uh, thankfully. Um, and so for them, it's possible to get off, uh, you know, it's possible to get off the list. Um, talking about individuals who... Um, you know, committed crimes that are still committed, considered crimes today, it can be difficult. And again, a lot of it has to do not with their risk level, not with, they don't, in very few states do you have the opportunity to actually petition to get off the registry um, to show that, that, again, that you have rehabilitated. And so for those individuals who committed crimes that are still considered crimes um, today, it, it can be nearly impossible to get off the registry. They have a very difficult time um, uh, because either the state just doesn't give them the opportunity, there is no opportunity to get off, um, or they're just it's hard for them to um, get you know to, to get the, the the board that determines those things to approve for them to get off the registry. And I think again, what you're starting to see the trend is is that most states states are starting to move towards um, placing almost anyone convicted of a sex crime on registries for life with an inability to get off the registry. Do they put uh, pictures in all these registries? Well, you have with registration, and in our report at least, when we, we use the term registration, we were talking about um, police registration, where ah, police okay. have the list of names, but the public um, doesn't have easy access to it. The public could always go down to the police station and get the names, and, um, you know, this is someone's public record usually, so they could find out the information in other ways. But when you talk about online Mm -hmm. Community notification, yes. Usually what it is is there's the person's name and their picture is on there. Um, their address is listed. Um, maybe their the make and model of their car, their place of employment. Um, and then, like you brought up earlier, I think they also list the statutory name of their crime, which, again, can be sort of confusing because part of what we found when we were looking at these registries is that when you look at them, it's actually, I think, sort of difficult to figure out on your own what the risk is this individual poses to, um, you know, yourself or your children or, or whoever you're worried about or want to protect and um, what you should do now that you have the information. I mean, yes, this is about the rights of former offenders, it's about public safety, but it's also about how useful and effective are, are these law, are these um, registries. And when, you know, I would go and I searched all 50 states online registries, and it's, it's very difficult to tell exactly what kind of crime they committed because, again, it often just is listed under a statute. And statutory names can be confusing, and they don't necessarily convey a lot of information. Um, so it's difficult to figure out what exactly they did. Um, they very rarely list um, in sort of layperson's terms um, what risk this person poses. Um, 
how that risk was determined, and what I should do with this information, you know, in terms of what can I do to protect myself or, or people that I love. And in some ways, when I would speak to some parents who would look on the registry, they found it to be actually it increased sort of their anxiety level and their stress level without doing, giving, providing them anything very useful. And now, you know, if that was the only, if that was the worst thing these registries did, then, um, it may be okay to have them, but that isn't, you know, this is about also, I mean, it just really devastates people's lives who are placed on the online registry. So if we can't make any connection between, um, say, the online registry and um, the prevention of sexual violence, then, you know, they seem to be almost in this, this unacceptable um, the tool that we've been using because, again, they don't work. Um, and they really just devastate people's lives. It makes it nearly impossible for anyone ever to sort of move beyond their sex crimes conviction and, and try to make um, their way, you know, safely and lawfully in the society with their family um, and with their um, support network. Uh, you profile a person who is now in his 40s, and he was convicted of having sex with a minor when he was a teenager, and uh, he actually ended up marrying her. And yet the registry or the online um, database lists her at his current age, 45, and he was accused of having sex with a teenage a minor. And so it makes it sound like he was doing it when he was 45. Yes, yeah. I mean, that is, that is another, um, that is a problem as well, is that it usually lists, um, like you said, it lists the name or the age of the victim at the time of the offense. And the current age of the offender. Um, so when you are talking about some of these cases that involved either consensual teenage sex or that did involve a sexually violent behavior um, on the part of a child, um, still someone might look at that behavior a little differently if you're talking about a 10-year-old who molested a 6-year-old versus, you know, years go on and you're looking at, um, it looks like this, this person who might be now 40 molested a 6-year-old. You know, those are different types of crimes. And again, it gives misleading information to people. It makes the registries, the online registries, not as useful as they could be. You know, and that's what we really were advocating for in our report is that, you know, we, we came out against online registries because the consequences are so severe. And again, there doesn't seem to be any um, public safety impact. And at the same time, we're also urging states, if you are going to use online registries, because we do understand that online registries are incredibly popular. Um, I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. And I think it's also very difficult once you've created something to uncreate it or once <laughs> you've put something out there to take it back. And I also think there are a lot of parents who really feel like it's their right to know um, who is living uh, if there are dangerous offenders living in their neighborhood. And, you know, we sort of agree with them to the extent that, I mean, we understand that people want as, as much information as they can get to sort of protect themselves and their family. Um, at the same time, you know, online registries aren't the tool that, um, aren't such a useful tool. Um, I don't, we don't think they're protecting the community as much as people think they might be. And we think that there are better ways for parents to get this information. We could have more targeted um, community notification by law enforcement officials where um, they very carefully um, and with great training, you know, sort of go door-to-door -door neighborhoods where someone who has been individually assessed to be a high risk, um, they go into those neighborhoods, um, figure out, you know, who probably needs to know, who would benefit from their information, and, and let them know this individual's moved in and find a responsible 
um, useful way to convey this information to um, communities. You know, online notification doesn't doesn't do that. Again, it's not it's not a very responsible way of doing it. Because, like we said, anyone anywhere can figure out if someone's on a registry, and often they've used that information to then harass that person and and um, even commit acts of violence against that person. And in, in a way that that doesn't protect anybody, and that doesn't further anyone's public safety um, by exposing um, former offenders to that kind of that kind of harassment. Um, and so for us, you know, when we thought about online notification, we really urged states, if you're not going to eliminate it, at least, you know, you have to narrow this down a little bit. You know, states that just have thousands and thousands of names on their registry, um, you have to make it a little bit easier for parents to figure out who actually poses a risk and what kind of risk do they pose. And so we really you know, are advocating that states, first of all, take off people who are individually assessed to be sort of a low risk or probably never should have been on there in the first place, like people who had consensual teenage sex. Second of all, make sure that you're doing individualized assessments um, and, and figuring out who poses um, a significant risk to the community. And then, you know, give um, registrants away every few years or so to petition to be released. Um, from the registry requirements, um, give them a sense that they, you know, that there is some hope that um, they can be released from these requirements if they engage in in lawful behavior. Um, you know, we talked to a number of offenders or former offenders who really had lost a certain amount of hope, and it was um, mm. almost alarming to speak to them because they would talk about, you know, no one believes that, you know, everyone just assumes I'm going to reoffend. I'm going to. This is going to be my life you know, for the rest of my life, no matter how well I behave, um, mm. they would spiral into depression, and they would often talk about, you know, some days I just want to say, forget it. Why does it matter if I, if I do well? I just feel like, you know, they feel angry and depressed, and they talk possibly about, um, you know, hurting someone again. And I think that, again, that is very alarming, and I think that we need to look at I know it's very difficult for, I think, anybody to feel, um, you know, compassion for individuals who have been convicted of sex crimes like child molestation. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's really a public safety um, argument on, on a lot of levels because, again, no one is safer when, when former offenders fail in the community. And if we have created laws that make it harder to succeed, I think then we really, for those of us and those politicians that really care about preventing sexual violence, they have to figure out a way um, to... Um, reform some of these sex offender laws so that they they not just do less damage to the offender, but um, you know do less damage to public safety as a whole. And again, take into consideration that the wide that the real full picture of sexual violence and acknowledge that as much as we pay attention to previously convicted sex offenders, let's also start figuring out how we can prevent. 87% of sex crimes that occurred by individuals or committed by individuals who have no previous convictions. Uh, on that point, we're going to uh, move to talking about recidivism. And we're talking with uh, Sarah Tofty, who's the uh, author of a new report from Human Rights Watch, No Easy Answers, Sex Offender Laws in the United in the U.S. Uh, and this is Sylvester Show on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. This is Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, you did a, a, a in depth, more in-depth study of one uh, state, I believe it was North Carolina, 
Health's uh, registry, and you found that um, the because that listed the date of um, date of the different incidents, mm-hmm. and uh, you were able to see that actually a lot of these uh, people on the registry were actually uh, first-time offenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we did decide to do a study. Um, and, you know, we're trying to figure out exactly, you know, how many are first-time offenders and, um, you know, how long have some of them been living out in the community um, without being rearrested. I mean, I, I think before we talk about recidivism rates and reoffense rates, the terms are so tricky. This is definitely the hardest part um, of our report in terms of really wanting to get it right. And there's probably there's a, there's constant debate about um, recidivism and reoffense rates of sex offenders. Um, there was lots of debate before our report. There's there's some debate about our report, and there will continue to be debate for decades to come. You know, I think like any area of of criminal justice, um, we you know to make good policy, you sort of try to rely on numbers that can be verified in terms of when you're talking about someone's reoffense rate. And the way you do that with criminal justice policy is you look at recidivism rates, which means the reported crimes. You know, you know, former um, or previously convicted sex offenders who were rearrested or um, reconvicted or reincarcerated um, for another sex offense. Now, you know, we understand. I mean, one of the big debates about looking at recidivism rates is that you might miss some of the true reoffense rates. And, and some of that concern comes from, I think, the fact that, um, you know, we know that sexual violence is one of the most underreported crimes um, of violent crimes. So, you know, estimates anywhere from, you know, only 10 to 20 percent of, of victims of sexual violence actually report the crime. And so we know it's underreported. Um, it's not clear. Um, there's a lot of, you know, questions. It's not clear that it's necessarily underreported or more underreported when you're talking about previously convicted sex offenders. I mean, some people um, have hypothesized that once you've been convicted of a sex crime, it becomes a lot more difficult to um, reoffend without being noticed because you are being watched pretty carefully, or you should be, by your parole and probation officers, by um, you know law enforcement officials. And so it's not really clear that um, the underreporting of sexual violence, um, you know, s- says a lot about uh, the reoffense rates of former offenders. In that, um, again, it's not clear that those crimes that are not being reported that that they're being mostly committed, say, by previously convicted sex offenders. Because some people have said to us, you know, our basic system that we rely on um, is that. In general, three out of four sex offenders will not um, recidivate, will not be rearrested or reconvicted for another sex crime. Now, that's not quite the same as, the, as saying that they will not reoffend because we don't know. There's always going to be an element of we don't know. Um, someone could commit a sex crime um, that is not detected by, by law enforcement, and, and that is the weakness of relying on reported data. But at the same time, all we really have is is this reported data, um, government statistics on these kinds of things. It's what we use to determine criminal justice policy for all other sorts of of, of 
individuals who committed crimes that were not sex crimes. And so it's what we used in our report um, in talking about recidivism rates of um, previously convicted sex offenders. Um, you know, even taking into account the fact that there might be some people who reoffend and, and are just not caught for it. I mean, the fact is that most legislators, often when they were um, when they would talk about the need for um, uh, sex offender laws, they would say, you know, gosh, 80 to 90 percent of of um, previously convicted sex offenders will reoffend. And there's just no, we could not find any. Um, validity to that number. We looked at every study that we could find, every um, recidivism study we could find, and we never saw a number like that. Um, again, what you see in general is that over sort of a 15-year period when someone's released, um, three out of four will not be rearrested um, for a sex crime. And now it differs sometimes when you're talking about different kinds of sex crimes. And this is sort of another way that our sort of one-size-fits-all policy fails us because legislators have treated basically all sex offenders the same. They're all going to be subject to these residency restrictions. Um, they're all going to be subject to registration. They're all going to be subject to the same kind of community notification for the most part. And there, you know, you know sexual violence is a really complex um, uh, sort of dynamic sort of crime, and it really depends on an individual offender in terms of their ability to rehabilitate, um, their likelihood of reoffending. But we don't take any of that into consideration for the most part when we legislate um, to restrict the rights of former offenders. We sort of treat them all as if, if they're all the same. And so the same policy should apply and will work for all of them. When in fact, you know, different offenders have different, um, there are different likelihoods of reoffending for different kinds of offenders. For example, adult men who molest um, prepubescent, preadolescent boys tend to have a much higher recidivism rate than, for example, um, a, um, a father who molests his daughter. Um, it, or any other sort of case involving incest. Now, people aren't sure exactly why that is. I mean, they're both very violent crimes. They're both um, reprehensible crimes. And at the same time, um, those types of different types of offenders tend to respond differently. Again, for whatever reason, they respond differently to um, the fact that they got arrested. For a lot of offenders, that's sort of their rock bottom moment where um, they make some sort of decision to not do that again because um, the consequences for them are so great and it's scary and prison is terrifying. Um, or they respond differently to treatment, um, or they have different support services when they get out. They have better access to um, stable housing, things like that. So again, when we're talking about recidivism rates or reoffense rates, it's, it's, it's so hard because politicians want to speak as if all you know, convicted sex offenders are all the same. And so the same law should apply to everyone in the same ways. And in fact, again, like I said, this one-size-fits-all policy, again, really fails um, public safety and fails the goal of trying to prevent sexual violence because it really isn't getting at the reality of, of um, you know, individuals who are convicted of sex crimes and the reality of sexual violence, which is that, um, you know, every individual is going to respond differently to um, treatment, um, to incarceration, to release. And so we have to come up with, I think, a more individualized system to reflect the individualization um, of previously convicted uh, sex offenders. In your research, did you come across where that uh, myth came from? The fact, uh, the I mean, the 
the the um, the polit- politicians' belief that the recidivism rate is so high. You know, we tried to. Um, we tried to contact, especially members of Congress, who, when they spoke um, on the floor about, you know, before they passed Jacob's Law and before they passed Megan's Law. Megan's Law is the law that the federal law that requires states to do community notification, both through law enforcement and online. And when they passed the Adam Walsh Act, and um, one, it was very difficult for us. Um, uh, senators' offices didn't return our calls when senators used statistics because we wanted to find out from them where exactly they had gotten those statistics. Um, we thought, you know, if there there are a few studies that look, but again, they're, they're smaller studies that look at individuals who have been convicted of multiple offenses um, over a number of years. So they were convicted of child molestation, say, in, in, and then five years later they were convicted again of, of another kind of child molestation, and then maybe 10 years after that. And so we do know from um, recidivism rate studies that the more convictions you have, the higher the likelihood that you're going to reoffend. And so we did find one study that was only studying individuals who had multiple convictions. So you're already only looking at individuals who are of high risk. And again, we don't deny or we don't argue that there are not we understand there are some previously convicted sex offenders who pose a risk. Um, they just don't all pose the risk, I think, that we assume they do. But anyway, from this study, and these were all in, these were individuals who were adult offenders who had molested young boys. So again, they were also um, sort of outliers in the sense that they also were already in a group that's considered more high risk than other groups. Again, a small study, maybe um, two dozen individuals, and they had a very high recidivism rate. It was, at times, for some of them, close to 80%. And the number might have come from there. And again, by looking at only just that study, there are so many different studies out there. And there are studies they could have looked at um, that are much more considered much more authoritative, um, considered much more um, accurate in the sense that they look at, say, there's a the study that we looked at the most or relied on the most was a study done by the Canadian government um, where they looked at 30,000 convicted sex offenders from both in Canada and in the U.S., and they looked at their recidivism rates, and that's where we sort of get the number that three out of four will not reoffend because they tracked them for about a 15-year period, and um, they all had been convicted of a variety of kinds of crimes, but overall the number was about three out of four don't reoffend. So there are ways I think you can get to the 80% number. I haven't seen one that gets you to the 90% number, but I also think some politicians didn't do their homework. I think that either they repeated numbers that they had heard from others and never questioned whether those were accurate numbers. I don't think they took a whole lot of time to figure out if what they were saying or what they were hearing from others was true. And um, you know, again, it's not hard to pass sex offender laws, and every every politician sort of looks, you know, it's sort of a win-win for them because um, they look tough on crime, but not just tough on crime, they're being tough on sex offenders, and who doesn't want that? Um, but, again, the reality is by not doing their homework um, and by sort of... Um, carelessly tossing out some of them, these recidivism rate numbers, it's also easy to question what exactly, you know, was their goal. Because, again, if their goal is, um, like all of, most of our goals is, I'm assuming, is to prevent sexual violence. And if that's their goal, then you would think they would want to um, actually research and figure out what the, 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 this real, real picture, uh, what, what, what are the recidivism rates, and, again, what does sexual violence really look like in this country so we can actually pass laws that, that, that have a better chance of, of reducing sexual violence.
it seems emotions are dictating what they do. Um, you know, you, in one of your chapter headings, you talk about um, U.S. sex offender policy is alone in the world. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, unfortunately, sexual violence is a problem in every, uh, everywhere, all over the world. And Human Rights Watch has sent researchers, again, all over the world to document sexual violence and um, worked on, on preventing sexual violence. But um, so sexual violence obviously is not unique to the U.S. And yet we are um, the only country that we could find that, that um, implements residency restrictions. Um, and we are only um, one of a handful of countries that has police registration for sex offenders. And one of the only countries, um, South Korea was the, yeah, the other one, who does um, online notification, community notification. Um, you know, other countries have decided um, they're going to respond to sexual violence in a different way. And, and there's no evidence that, that um, you know, that we have less sexual violence in other countries because we have these different kinds of laws. Um, in fact, uh, the United Kingdom or Great Britain thought about doing uh, online community notification, and they actually studied the experience in the U.S., and they made the decision that... <laughs> The government made the decision that um, it really wasn't, um, it, one, it wasn't clear it was working, and two, it was, it was um, bringing about, the only thing it was doing was, um, you know, bringing about harassment and, and violence for former offenders. And so as of now, they've decided they're not going to do online notification. And so, again, the U.S. is really the only country in the world that has this the, the, the extensive sex offender laws that we have. And, again, it's not clear that um, we are any safer um, and, and we are any more protected from sexual violence than, than any other country. It's uh, encouraging the lynch mob, these laws. Uh, do, I mean, have you seen cases where actually people uh, force people out of town? Well, you know, we wouldn't probably say, as an organization, you know, we wouldn't say lynch mom, but we really um, did see cases where um, people were victims of violence um, because they're on the registry. Now, again, we recognize, I mean, one of the arguments that the other side will often make is that, you know, when these people chose to commit a sex crime, um, you know, they chose now, to, they have to live with the consequences. And so we understand that we're not talking here, we are talking about individuals who did, who did commit a terrible crime. Um, and some of them may pose a risk to our community, and we have to identify who those individuals are and figure out a way to help them um, and the community, you know, for all of us to um, um, live safely, you know, when they're in the community, including the individual. Um, who committed the crime. At the same time, what's happened is, um, you know, and, and, and states haven't exactly helped um, prevent this kind of stuff because states um, don't, uh, most states don't, um, you know, urge caution on the part of, of um, the public who's going to find out about individuals convicted of sex crimes. And most straight states do their own, you know, perpetuate some of these myths and, and don't do anything to, um, deflect any, you know, the, 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 the assumptions that most of the public has, that these people are inherently, um, you know, dangerous always and, and can't be cured and, and so are a huge threat and must be driven out of the community. States have not done a very good job of, of um, 
uh, you know, trying to prevent uh, that kind of harassment that's, that's come about for former offenders. But, yes, I mean, they are harassed. We spoke to people who had feces left on their doorstep. We spoke to people who had rock uh, thrown through their window with a, um, a note uh, calling them, you know, a baby rapist or a child rapist. We had someone's, you know, someone's driveway was tarred, um, you know, and, and it's a child rapist on the driveway. Um, people have been... You know, beaten up people have been, a couple of people have been uh, killed. Um, people have found their names on the registry and decided they, you know, it would be a good thing to kill a, a convicted child molester. So we um, have spoken to, we spoke to the family of a woman whose son was killed. Um, mm. And even more sad, I mean, I don't think anyone obviously um, uh, should be killed uh, but, um, you know, it was all, her story was so heartbreaking in it because in addition to sort of she lost her son and he was killed, but he was on the registry for having consensual teenage sex. And it was not clear, you know, the person who um, murdered him was someone who didn't know her son. He lived in Canada, actually, and just found his name on a registry. And because of the way the information appears on the registry, it wasn't clear. It looked like he was a, you know, a child molester. Um, so they, have, they do have registries in Canada? online registry well no well no what happened was this this Canadian citizen just looked up um, a registry in the US um, so oh. no yeah Canada's is not but you know anyone anywhere in the world can get this information so if someone is in China and they would like to Google um, you know Maine sex offender registry the state of Maine they can do that and it'll come up and they can get the information I mean so again we're talking about there's really no need to know limitations here um, it's available to anyone anywhere in the world and states don't restrict access um, to the online registry some states restrict who gets put on online registry and tries to narrow it a little bit, but they don't restrict access. You, any of us can get on any of these online registries regardless of our purpose or our intent or, again, of our need to know. Uh, given this moral panic over safety of children and moral panic over, you know, over the sex offenses, uh, do you see any realistic um, um, goal that you can achieve uh, by making a legislative proposal like you do in your report? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm part of it. I know, you know, some say it's about, you know, there might be some moral panic going on. And I would also, but I would also say, um, you know, millions of Americans are affected by sexual violence. And I think that also drives, um, uh, you know, some of this legislation because, you know, I was in the course of doing my report, I would say that I was almost taken aback by the number of people um, in my workplace or in my personal life or anyone who found out I was doing a report like this. At some point, you know, they would often come up to me and say, you know, my uncle molested me or mm. they would say, you know, my best friend, um, her stepfather molested her or they would tell me these stories and they're such painful stories and they're such terrible stories and um, you know, so I think some of this is about, some of this legislation is about the fact that so many Americans are affected by sexual violence and, you know, it makes us angry and so we want it to stop. Um, you know, and again, unfortunately, these laws are, are not the laws that are going to do it and, and they, they, they may be de doing more harm than good and that should be disconcerting to anyone who, who cares about sexual violence. Um, but in terms of progress, I think... 
You know, I, again, like I said, I think it's very difficult um, for legislators to do anything that looks like it might be uh, that, that looks like they're going easy on former sex offenders. These laws have been very easy for them to pass, and they have, you know, we've had them now for almost a decade and a half, and, and they've really gotten away with um, passing laws that, again, there, there's no evidence they actually prevent sexual violence. They've gotten away with pouring millions and millions and millions of dollars into laws that um, have not proven effective, and we have not held them accountable for that. And, you know, it sort of remains to be seen if, if, if we're going to start demanding better laws. Uh, again, it's, a, it's a, an incredibly um, stigmatized, politically unpopular group um, that in some ways would, would yes, you know, there's gonna, they would benefit in some ways from some of these reforms. And that's just an idea that many people find uh, intolerable almost. Um, one, one statistic stood out in your report. You, you uh, mentioned a study that looked at sexual activity among uh, young people. Uh, and it said 40% of, uh, was it uh, people that by the age they were 16 had uh, already sex. And so they, they all would be considered child offenders under the law. Um, is there any move to reform not just the registration laws, but to lower the age of consent laws? Oh, well, there is, there's, I, I, you know, I don't know as much about um, reform of age of consent laws, but I do know that... Um, you bring up a good point that if I think if there's going to be any movement, um, and there has been some movement already, states have moved in the last, you know, five years or so to create what they call Romeo and Juliet laws, where they make an exception for individuals who've had consensual teenage sex. And so there has been um, uh, a move in, in uh, there has been some movement there. And I do think if you see any movement, if you see any states that don't end up passing the Adam Walsh Act, I think that um, the movement will come, um, states are bulking at the juvenile provisions of the Adam Walsh Act. I think states are feeling they really don't want to put um, child offenders on their registries. Um, some states already do that. So for them, it won't be a problem. For, but for the states that don't, that's where I think you're going to see some movement when we're talking about child offenders and juvenile offenders like, who have engaged in behavior that, um, if it isn't consensual, is, is that behavior that's disturbing, um, that we want them to seek treatment for, but is not behavior that we want to label them with for the rest of their lives. Um, so I do think you will see some movement there. Because Rest the records are supposed to be secret, right? They're sealed. There's the records when they are in yeah. juvenile courts should be sealed, but because of these registration laws they're, uh, and online stuff, they're becoming public now. That is, that's a, that another good point, is that in some states, um, not every state, it, it sort of depends, but in, in, in many states, juveniles can move to have their records expunged or sealed if they are adjudicated in juvenile court. Um, and so what we've seen happen, say, um, for example, in Michigan, you have individuals who were adjudicated and they made a sort of, and often they make a plea deal um, in, a, in, in exchange for having their record sealed um, once they turn 18 because it's this acknowledgement that we believe in the rehabilitative potential of children of juvenile offenders, and we don't want them to be stigmatized for the rest of their lives with a criminal conviction or a criminal record. But what happens is is that um, 
state community notification laws can trump, um, sort of trump, uh, in effect, these uh, the sealed record laws um, for juveniles in states because, again, for example, in Michigan, we talk to people who have a sealed record who technically have no criminal conviction, um, no paper record of it, and yet they're placed on the online registry. And so um, that's really quite a public record, um, and it really negates the effect of, of not technically having a, a criminal record. So you're right. So do you see any chance of um, you know, your proposals being considered seriously by any legislature? You, you call, for instance, for the repeal of these, uh, some of these uh, public uh, registration uh, yeah. databases. Well, we don't, we, you know, that one I think is going to take a while. That we're going to, you know, because I think the public really, really, you know, online registries are really popular. And I think that that one might take a while. It's going to take a lot, a lot. It's, it's going to be a long advocacy effort for us. We do have some hope that um, we can stop the registries from getting worse, <laughs> from, getting, from including more and more people for longer amounts of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have some hope about child offenders. And there is some movement um, uh, about residency restrictions, not so much, unfortunately, in legislatures. Most times legislatures, despite overwhelming evidence that the laws they put in place are not working and are just wreaking havoc almost on, on, on uh, the ability of law enforcement to monitor offenders living in the community and the ability of individuals to reintegrate safely into the community, despite evidence, like, for example, in Iowa, the Iowa legislature has known now for the past since their residency restriction law went into effect about about two years ago, close to three years, um, it has just been disastrous. They have lost track of people on the registry that they hadn't ha- that they had been able to track before. People have become homeless. People have gone underground, have failed to register because they couldn't find any legal address to register in. And law enforcement officials, since the law went into effect, have been speaking out against it. Um, have gone to the legislature and said, "You have to change this law. It is." A disaster. You might have had good intentions, but it is not working. County attorneys, prosecutors have gone to the legislature, treatment providers, everyone has gone to the legislature for the past two years, and for the past two years, the legislature has failed to act, has failed to do anything. Even the public in Iowa is starting to turn against some of these laws because they feel like it's making them less safe. And still the legislature is afraid to do anything because they don't want to look like they're being soft on child molesters. So we do recognize it is going to be a long battle ahead. But we hope that with this report and with other things going on out there, um, again, this is just a sort of one of the first phases in, in what will probably be a protracted, um, you know, advocacy effort to um, change some of these laws and start um, getting legislators to actually uh, pass laws that are going to um, protect all of us. Well, thank you very much. We're coming to the near the end of our time. Uh, we've been talking with Sarah Tofte. Uh, of Human Rights Watch, uh, who has um, written a pioneering report about um, the fact that uh, sex offender laws are not meeting their goals and uh, may be counterproductive. Uh, thank you for uh, talking with us. A very oh. illuminating interview. Thank you very much. Uh, we can uh, get a copy of his, her report on the Human Rights Watch site, hrw.org or on the Subversity site, which is KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. This is Dan Sung with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Archived editions of the show are on our Subversity website at KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. 
The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the Regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Today you are listening to a show on human rights of sex offenders and the limits of sex offender laws. This is Dan Sang signing off with Subversity. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.